Well, back in 1620, a group of about 100 colonists set out on a ship called the Mayflower for a new life in a new world. They landed in Massachusetts to form a new colony. Half of them, though, did not survive that first winter. Thankfully, they were greeted by some local Indians in the spring who taught them how to survive. They had their first successful harvest the year after. And so November 1621, Governor William Bradford threw a Thanksgiving feast for the remaining colonists and the local Indians. And this event, as you know, is commonly held to be the first American Thanksgiving. Later, George Washington proclaimed a national Thanksgiving celebration on November 26, 1789, declaring, quote, a day of public Thanksgiving and prayer to be observed by acknowledging with grateful hearts the many and signal favors of Almighty God, end quote. That's how America, uh, Thanksgiving started in America. Safe to say America has sure lost sight of that Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving today has turned in for a lot of people just another shopping occasion where people forsake their families and go buy Chinese plastic. Pretty much what it is. Such consumerism, though, kills Thanksgiving because life is not about being thankful for what you have, but constantly longing for more. Atheism also kills Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving most often implies to God, or else to whom do you give thanks? I mean, I guess you could thank the turkey for giving its life, but it's not like it had a choice. Rather, Thanksgiving has always been about thanking God for his grace, his blessing, his provision. When you abandon God, though, Thanksgiving really goes down the drain because individualism rises and division results. At the very least, things should be different in the church. Of all people, we should still be characterized by Thanksgiving because we have the most to be thankful for. We still recognize God as the creator, so we are to thank him for for life and breath and all things. Even more so, knowing Christ, we are to thank God for our great salvation. So is that something you regularly do? I'm not talking about the holiday of Thanksgiving just a few days ago, but does the act of Thanksgiving characterize your life every day? It should. And do you thank God for your salvation? Sure, yeah, I bet you do. I'm sure you do. That's good. Do you thank God for the church? Yeah, maybe every now and then. What about one another? Do you thank God just for one another? I'm not talking about praying for one another simply. When was the last time you prayed for one another? When was the last time you, you merely thanked God for one another in the church? Ever? I found that as the mentality of consumerism has made its way into the church, so the idea of, of thankfulness especially for one another, gets lost. If you view church as merely the place you go to get your spiritual felt needs met, you're going to be less prone to thank God for one another because, you know, what do they do for you? You might thank God for the pastor or someone that serves you, but, you know, the average Joe in the pew next to you, why should you thank God for them? What do they give to you? What do they do for you? However, such mutual thankfulness should be a part of the church's lifeblood, and hopefully you can see how that plays a huge factor in the church's unity. Giving thanks for one another is directly tied to the unity of the church. And for sure, if if more people spent more time thanking God for one another, praying for one another, instead of complaining about one another, all the divisions and and conflicts, I'm sure, would, would melt away, or at least a good majority of them. And today we want to further explore this notion of thanksgiving especially for one another in the church. You know, given our nation's history 
And our own church's history on this day, like, like Don was talking about, it's very fitting for us to be talking about Thanksgiving and God's providence that just so happens to be what our text in Philippians is all about. So let's, let's find out. Why don't you open your Bibles this morning to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Just, just last week we began our journey through this book of the Bible, new to us, Philippians. We made it through verses 1 and 2, just Paul's introduction and now we, we go on to verses 3 through 8. And Paul is continuing his introduction. And he does so in the form of thanking God for the Philippian church. This is something Paul typically did in his letters. But the Philippians had a special place in Paul's heart. So this is a special thanksgiving. And much for us to learn here as well. Now that being said, this passage is not a how-to on prayer per se. This is a very historical passage. You've got this guy, the Apostle Paul. He's expressing his thanksgivings to God on behalf of these Philippian believers. All these people have been dead and gone for 2,000 years. So it's, it's fair to ask, what does Paul's thanksgiving prayer for these people that we don't even know have to do with us today? And the answer is nothing directly. That's true. But as you know, so much of Scripture... Old Testament and New Testament was written for our instruction and our example. And in this regard, Philippians 1 really shines. You know, we're not Philippian believers living 2,000 years ago, but at the same time, it should come as no surprise to you that thanksgivings are to be a regular part of our, of our prayers. In fact, I bet you know the simple acronym used to teach children how to pray. ACTS, Acts, Adoration, Confession. Thanksgiving, supplication. You see, the purpose of prayer is not merely to to ask God for a bunch of stuff, like he's our cosmic Santa Claus. Instead, our prayers are largely to consist of of praise and, and thanksgivings to God for what he's already given to us, what he's already done for us. And there's so much. Thanksgiving, therefore, should have a chief place in our prayer lives. This is something we learn from many passages in Scripture, something we learn from the life of our Lord himself, and something we learn from the example of Paul. And that's what really shines here in Philippians chapter 1. All this goes to say, Paul's personal example is very instructive. Although we have a passage that merely describes his personal thanksgivings for the Philippians, by way of inspired illustration, we find a pattern of giving thanks for the saints and that we would do well to follow. So let's see what this is all about. Let's begin by reading this passage, Philippians 1, verses 3 through 8, and see what's in store. Philippians 1, verses 3 through 8. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you, because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. This is Paul continuing his introduction, continuing to basically greet the Philippians. But if you know anything about the Greek language or Paul's introductions, his personal writing style, you'll know to expect these kind of lengthy, meandering 
introductions at times. In other words, Paul uses a lot of words to basically say he's really thankful for them. There's a lot packed in here, though. And we're going to spend our time trying to unpack it, see what there is for us to learn as well. So let's let's do this. First, notice this is a prayer of thanksgiving. Number one, a prayer of thanksgiving. It starts in verse three. Paul says, pretty simply, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. It's a prayer of thanksgiving. He introduces himself and Timothy. He greets the Philippians. And then he he rolls right into this expression of his prayer of thanksgiving for them as he continues to to greet them. Every time he recalls them, he he thanks God on their behalf. The word here, Eucharisteo, the Eucharist you've heard before. Remember when Jesus in communion took the bread, broke it, gave thanks. Same word here, Eucharisteo. Paul is giving thanks. Now it's for people, for the Philippian believers themselves. As he calls them to mind and thinks about how God has worked in and through them, he can't help but but pause and and give thanks. Now, as you study Paul's letters, you find he did this all the time. He thanked God all the time for all the churches, all the believers. It's not an abnormality. He was constantly in prayer and constantly thanking God for others. And already that's convicting because do you constantly pray about anything? Would you even have a, a constant prayer life, let alone a constant thanksgiving in prayer life? Already convicting, but Paul's prayers, they were not only constant, they were also comprehensive, especially the case here with these Philippians. Notice how encompassing this little prayer is. Look, look again at verse 3. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. You have all these terms like all, always, every, all. Just He's piling it on. We get the impression that Paul, he's just praying all the time for all these Philippian believers. And he was. Now you might say, Paul's only giving thanks for them because, you know, they're such wonderful people. We've already learned the Philippian church is a really excellent church. And, and that's true. But at the same time, Paul gives thanks for the Romans, whom he had never met. He also gives thanks for the Corinthians, who were quite worldly and fleshly. But even this shouldn't stop us from giving thanks for every brick in the household of God, all those for whom Christ died. And as often as Paul remembered them, he prayed for them, and he thanked God for them. And this we learn is something he did quite regularly. So this is, this is how it begins. This is prayer of thanksgiving. Everything that follows kind of hinges off of verse 3. It's all a part of this prayer of thanksgiving, but he weaves in other sentiments. So we also find this to be, number two, a prayer of joy. A prayer of thanksgiving, also a prayer of joy. And back into verse 4. Tied into this thanksgiving prayer, he said he was, verse 4, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. We must naturally thank God for that which brings us joy. And for Paul, it was the Philippian believers themselves. They delighted his heart, so he thanked God for them. Here we have the first explicit mention of joy, which as you already know, that's going to be a dominant theme in Philippians. Paul, he's already modeling for them the quality which later he will exhort them to possess, to just have joy. 
he rejoices in the Lord over them. Now, we're going to save this concept of biblical joy for later passages. But for now, are you surprised to find the first mention of joy in Philippians to be in connection with prayer? And for a lot of people, those two words don't go together. Prayer and joy. They don't mix like oil and water. Prayer and joy, that just doesn't work. When some think of prayer, they think of, you know, you're somber, you're quiet, you're contemplative, very serious, like like a monk in a secluded dark room praying to God. It's a very serious occasion. But so many prayers of God's people throughout Scripture, they're filled with exceeding joy. And can you say your prayers are filled with joy or more of a, a burden, a chore? Not to say that your prayers aren't serious, but if you have occasion to thank God, your prayers should be more like a a celebration of thanksgiving to God. And if you find your prayer life is more of of a burden, well, chances are you're missing something, and and chances are you're missing thanksgiving in prayer. Not so for Paul, though. Just the thought of the Philippian church brought joy to his heart, and it was very natural for him to just thank God then. They made him delighted, and he thanked God them. Now we ask, what exactly was it, though, about the Philippian church that so delighted Paul's heart that he's thanking God for them? Well, he gives two reasons in verses 5 and verse 6. The first cause of his joyful thanksgiving for them was their, verse 5, their perseverance. Their perseverance. Look at verse 5. I guess back, we can start verse 3 again. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, verse 5, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. So we find Paul first rejoices and thanks God for their perseverance in gospel partnership. You see that phrase in verse 5, participation in the gospel? Your translation might read, fellowship in the gospel or partnership in the gospel and rightly so this is that common greek word you might know koinonia often translated fellowship here i think partnership really captures what he's saying the philippian church they had partnered with paul in the ministry of the gospel from day one and and we already know that's true now i'm sure you can imagine for example a business partnership where one, one person does all the work. The other person is a partner in name only. But the Philippians, they were not partners in the gospel in name only. They were really in the trenches with Paul in many ways. Take, for example, Lydia. She's the first convert in Philippi, in Europe, to be, to be uh, sure, actually. After God opened her heart to believe, immediately she opened her home to believers. She welcomed Paul and his fellow gospel workers into her home. And then later, she just kept her home open. And back then, you know, they didn't have church buildings. So her house became the headquarters of the Philippian church. That is real, tangible gospel partnership. She did what she could, her gift of hospitality. She opened her home and facilitated the gospel. Others supported the gospel ministry through through prayer by praying for Paul. This, too, is an occasion for rejoicing. Paul says that down in verse 18. Look look there. He says later, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers 
and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. You know, most people in the Philippian church, they realized they could not be goers with Paul. But they could be senders, and they sent him off on the wings of prayer. And they kept praying for him as he was ministering the gospel. That sounds to some insignificant, but to God, nothing is as powerful as partnership in prayer when it comes to the gospel. You're praying for your missionaries. Really send them off in prayer. That is real partnership in the gospel. The Philippian church, though, they took this gospel partnership even one step further. You know, they recognized Paul as an apostle called to go to the ends of the earth. And so they partnered with Paul tangibly by giving to the work of the ministry. And we're talking financially here. They, they put their money where their mouth is. Paul needed resources to live, to travel about. And they reasoned, look, if they could free up Paul to minister more by, by giving to his need, well, then all the better. The gospel would advance faster. And that's what they did. Literally from day one, right when he left, and he, he goes to Thessalonica, they already sent him several gifts just to just take care of him. We'll learn that later in, in chapter four. But just put yourself in the shoes of a missionary. You're out, you're overseas, you're in a, a different country, a faraway land, you're all by yourself. You're living entirely off the giving of others. That's it, that's your food, your paycheck, it's just the giving of others. And so, yeah, you're, you're thankful for that one-time gift. Of course, you're very thankful for that one-time gift. But how would you feel toward that person back home? They give to you month after month. Every month, you count on their paycheck, their little donation to you. For, for 10 years, they have faithfully been giving to you, and they're with you. They're right there with you, and you can count on them. And what a relief that would be to the hardships and uncertainties of the mission field. And wouldn't you have just a, a special place in your heart for such a, a partner in the gospel? I mean, you would, and that's what Paul was feeling for these Philippians. They really had been by his side financially from the beginning. He says back in verse 5, they had partnered or participated in the gospel from the first day until now, and that, that's not an exaggeration. They really did. They never gave up on him, and that's because they never gave up on the gospel, and that's really what Paul is rejoicing in. Their faithful partnership, both in prayer and in giving, was an evidence of, of the gospel at work in their own lives. And that, that delighted his heart. And so he thanks God for them. So the first cause of his joyful thanksgiving for the Philippians is, verse 5, their, their perseverance. Their perseverance in gospel partnership. The second cause for this outburst of, of joyful thanksgiving is their preservation. Verse 6, he says after, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. This is one of the single most potent verses in all of Scripture on God's preservation of the saints. This tiny little verse tells us a lot. It tells us who starts the work of salvation, it's God. God began a good work in you, he says. We must respond in faith. Yes, absolutely, we must respond in faith. But if God doesn't turn the ignition key first, nothing's starting. No, no salvation work is starting. I mean, we already saw that, right, when Paul first landed in Philippi. 
Again, take Lydia, back when we studied this in Acts 16. Remember Acts 16, verse 14? Paul preached the gospel, and then verse 14 says, And then the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken of by Paul. And Paul, he, he could have nailed his gospel presentation. But if God didn't open her heart, if he didn't start the work of salvation, she would just remain a stone statue like everyone else, unable to respond. But this is what God does for all. He, all he draws to himself. He begins the good work of salvation. And God finishes this work as well. God finishes what he starts. He's not like a man who will put his hand to the plow and then look back. Like Jesus said, or, or like Calvin said, quote, God does not forsake the work which his own hands have begun, end quote. You know, growing up, and still today, I've been known to be part of the, the clean plate club, which I know, I know I'm know i real skinny, but I, I eat a lot, I, I swear. I really eat a lot. And whenever, you know, fill the plate before me, I'm just going to eat whatever's on the plate, and I will clean the plate more often than not. But even those of us with big appetites, we're still limited by our desire and our ability, sometimes. You know, sometimes you've got room to finish that steak, but all that's left is like the fat and the gristle, and you just, you just don't want to do it. Or other times, like when dessert rolls around, you want to eat it, but you, just, you have no room left. You are, we are limited by our desire and our ability in many ways. Thankfully, God is not so limited by his desire and ability. If, if he sets out to save someone, they're going to be saved. If his desire is there, his will is there, his power is there, there will be no stopping that person's salvation. And hence we have verses like Romans 8.30. And those whom God predestined, he also called. These whom he called, he also justified. These whom he justified, he also glorified. In that verse, Paul views God's salvation is being so certain, he can speak of our future glorification as essentially already done. Because in God's eyes, it's a done deal. If, if he begins the work, he's going to finish the work. It's his work, and there's no stopping him. The same goes for Philippians 1.6. Paul is full of confidence that the same God who began the work of salvation in their lives, he's going to finish it and carry them through. Now, there's a lot more we can say about this verse and the doctrine it expounds, the doctrine of the preservation of the saints. It's not the main point of the passage, though, so we're not going to do that right now. But I will tell you this. You, don't, you won't hear this from too many churches these days, but, but doctrine matters, right? Doctrine actually matters. It does matter a lot. And so we're going to come back next week for some additional teaching on this verse and the doctrine it presents, both the preservation and the perseverance of the saints. It's just too important. In Philippians 1.6, it is so huge in that discussion. Why not talk about it? So we'll do that next week. For now, though, it will suffice us to get back to the actual main point of the passage. This is Paul expressing his, his thanksgiving, joyful thanksgiving for these Philippian believers. And what causes this joyful thanksgiving? First, it is their perseverance in gospel partnership, that's verse 5. Second, it's their preservation by God in that same gospel, that's verse 6. Really, these are two sides of the same coin, their perseverance and their preservation. Both, though, they're reasons to give thanks. And so Paul gives thanks for them on, on this behalf or this account. Now let's move on and finish the passage. 
verses 7 and 8. We find this to be a prayer of joy. Also a prayer of affection, number three, a prayer of affection. It's overall a prayer of thanksgiving mixed in as a prayer of joy. And then number three here, a prayer of affection. Look at verse 7. He continues and says, For it is only right for me to feel this way about you because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. So in addition to joy over their perseverance and their preservation, Another ingredient in Paul's Thanksgiving prayer is his personal affection for them. He has an extra measure of thankfulness for them because he he has them in his heart. He really feels the love for them and, and they in return. And you know, part of what makes Philippians special is this relationship between Paul and the church. He really has deep feelings, affections for this little group of believers Now look, Paul could find a reason to thank God for every church. He could, for the work that God was doing in and through every church. But that doesn't mean he necessarily feels the same affection for every church. He he doesn't, like you and I wouldn't as well today. You know, some local churches, he thanked God for them, but at the same time, they were kind of headaches, like the churches of Galatia. His tone is much harsher in Galatians because, I mean, they were teetering on the edge of abandoning the gospel. So he, he's rebuking them, he's, he's sharp with them. But not Philippians, you never get that. It's like the Philippians are cut from the same cloth as Paul. There's no sharp disagreements or divisions here. They had no significant doctrinal or moral issues that grieved Paul. I mean, they were just faithful, lifelong partners in the gospel, in ministry with Paul. And it's just, they're special. They, they had a special place in his heart. Notice it says, verse 7, specifically, they stay by his side both in his imprisonment and his defense and confirmation of the gospel. Paul, he's in prison in Rome right now while he's writing this. Already he's been on trial several times. It's given him an occasion to defend the gospel. And you know the Philippian believers, they've been by his side the whole time in spirit. This wasn't always the case. You read some of Paul's other letters, you find... Several times, he calls out people who have abandoned him because of his imprisonment. They see his chains as a sign that God has rejected him and his ministry, and so they they cut ties with Paul. Even later in the chapter, actually, we'll learn later in Philippians 1, there were many people in Rome who were gloating over Paul's imprisonment. I mean, just think about any popular preacher you follow. Just, Just think of one in your mind. What if he were suddenly jailed? What would you think? I mean, we know there's the stigma and the shame that comes with being jailed. It's just kind of how it is. But many people, they would then try to discredit that popular preacher. They would say, well, look, this proof. God has rejected his ministry. And that's what was happening to Paul as he was being imprisoned for the gospel. But the difference is that the Philippian church, they recognized, well, yeah, he's in jail, but His chains are for the sake of the gospel. And they were not ashamed of those chains for the sake of the gospel. It's like Paul told Timothy later, again from prison, 2 Timothy 1, verse 8. 
He said to him, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. And Paul told Timothy that because many people were ashamed of the gospel and Paul, the gospel's prisoner. But not the Philippians. We learn later in the book that they too were having their own share of suffering for the gospel. That perhaps explains why they're ready and willing to stick by Paul in his sufferings. That there's a fellowship here, not only in gospel ministry, but also in suffering for gospel ministry. Paul and the Philippians are on the same level playing field. In fact, in verse 7, doesn't he even say to them that they are all partakers of grace with me. I mean, he's the apostle, but he's not more special. From top to bottom, apostle to slave, I mean, they're all recipients of the same saving grace of God. They're all made slaves of Christ, saints by calling, and they evidence the same grace by suffering for the gospel and staying by Paul as he too suffers for the good news of Christ Jesus. So verse 8, Paul calls God as his witness, something he reserves for only the most serious of claims he's about to make. Here, what does he claim? Verse 8, he claims to long for them with the affection of Christ Jesus. I'm not sure if any of you have the old King James Bible right now, but the old King James, this is how verse 8 reads. It says, For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. Now that sounds pretty weird, like what in the bowels of Jesus Christ. It sounds strange, but it's actually just the old literal translation of this word in the Greek, splachnon. It's kind of fun to say too. It literally means guts or bowels. Now in the ancient world though, you have to understand the seat of your affections, your feelings was thought to be your gut. Today we say you love someone from the heart. We've shifted up a few organs. Now we love someone from the heart. But back then it was from the gut. And it kind of makes sense though because, you know, you're in middle school, you have a crush on someone. Where do you feel it? Where do you feel those butterflies? In your gut. <laughs> and Paul and Paul is really, you know, recognizing that as well. And the point is to express the great love he has from them, from the bottom of his heart, from the bottom of his gut. He, he loves them. He has this deep affection for them. So do you, Wayman. So do you. And so he expresses for them this prayer of thanksgiving. And you can see how it's weaved together, though. There's a prayer of joy and a prayer of affection. It's all together in his thanksgiving for them. He loves them from, from the bottom of his heart. He has this deep affection for them. They've partnered with him for so long. He hasn't forgotten it as he's in chains. And so he thanks God for them. So that's what we have going on here. Verses 3 through 8, Paul's thanksgiving prayer for the Philippians. Before we end, though, I want to switch gears a little bit and spend a little time applying this passage to the present. Because so far we're just you know, sticking with the past. And here we have Paul's personal thanksgivings for these Philippian believers 2,000 years ago. And what, what does that have to do with us? Well, not much, but by way of inspired illustration, a whole lot. And that's what we have in, in so many passages of Scripture. We have in this passage a huge example of gospel partnership by the Philippians and what that means. Now, we're going to get to that, though, big time in chapter 4, so we'll save that for later. 
For now, though, I want us to spend our remaining time just briefly focusing uh, on the primary example that stems from this passage, and that is the example of thanksgiving in prayer. The example of thanksgiving in prayer. That's what, that's what Paul is doing here. This is a much-needed reminder. So let me recall for you four aspects of thanksgiving and prayer that stem from this text. And we need these reminders. Four aspects of thanksgiving and prayer that stem from this text. Number one, the place of thanksgiving and prayer. The place of thanksgiving and prayer. And that is frequent. Frequent. Thanksgiving should have a frequent place in our prayer life. I mean, you see that so clearly from the example of Paul here and elsewhere. Just about every one of his epistles begins with him just thanking God for the saints. So we have Paul's example. At the same time, there are plenty of direct commands regarding this. Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Ephesians 5.20, it says, always give thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. That's pretty clear. Always give thanks for all things. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, it says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So there you have it. There's God's will for you in everything, give thanks. In fact, even later in Philippians, won't Paul tell us to include thanksgiving in our prayer? I mean, you know the verse, Philippians 4, 6, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. So like it's fairly evident from the example of Paul to direct commands, you should have frequent thanksgiving in your prayers. In fact, a lack of thankfulness is a sign of unbelief. Listen to Romans one twenty one. Speaking of unbelievers, it says, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Unbelievers, rebels against God, they are characterized by their lack of thankfulness before God. Now, you don't want that to characterize you, right? But does it? Is thanksgiving absent from your prayer life? And we're talking all the time. It is meant to have a significant role. It needs to have a significant role. That you are thanking God daily for all things. So are you? Why should you? Well, let's reflect on this. Number two, the basis of thanksgiving in prayer. The basis of thanksgiving in prayer. And it is grace. Grace. The reason why God wants us to be always thanking him for all things is because thanksgiving, it is the right response to God's grace. If you have received God's grace, you should be thanking him every day. A lot of people spend all their time focusing on all the things they don't have. It leads to very discontent lives. But try thinking about all the things you do have. Good health, a stable job, a basic income, a house or apartment, just some place to live, healthy kids, a working car, Clothes, food, not having to worry about where you're going to get your next meal. Good friends, a loving family. 
Now, you may not have all those things, but I bet all of you have some of those things. And the point is, we all have reasons to give thanks. And for Christians, when you throw in the spiritual dimension, I mean, your thanksgiving meter should go through the roof. Because in Christ, we've already been given literally all things. Ephesians 1.3 says, God has already blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We've already been given eternal riches in Christ, which he purchased on the cross. And how do we receive these eternal riches? Just by grace, just by God's unmerited free favor. God is the source of all of our material and spiritual blessings. These blessings, we don't earn them, we don't deserve them. They just come out of God's goodwill and love for us. And so as you recall all of your blessings, that should give you joy and that should make you give thanks as well. And again, we're not meant to reflect on such things just once a year on the holiday of Thanksgiving. As Christians, this must be a daily occurrence. We have to constantly recollect God's grace in our lives and and thank him for all he's given to us, all he's already done for us. And so take that concept even a step further. This also provides to be the basis for our thanksgiving for one another, God's grace. You know, this whole time, maybe you've struggled with the notion of giving thanks for other believers, all other believers. Yeah, okay, you can give thanks for your friends. That's no problem. But maybe there's, you know, one or two people that you just can't stand. They rub you the wrong way. Maybe they've offended you in the past. And you just you just can't fathom thanking God for them. Like, why should you thank God for them? They, they've done nothing but, but be mean to you, for example. But that's because you're still viewing them through the lens of law, not grace. Yeah, they may have wronged you in the past, but look, we wrong God every day. But I'm sure thankful he views us through grace, not law. And that's how we need to view others as well, through unmerited favor, giving people what they don't deserve. You know, in all of Paul's epistles, as he thanks God for these different believers, he's not actually thanking God for for their good works per se. He's thanking God for the evidences of God's grace in their lives. Remember, he said of the Philippians that they were all partakers of grace with me. You know, we're all on a level playing field before God. You're not better or worse than any other believer. We're all merely recipients of God's grace, and that's how we stand before him. And that's what you need to focus on for others. You know, for the Philippians, it was their partnership in the gospel. But think about, think about others in your life. What evidences of God's grace do you see in their lives? I mean, do you see any spiritual growth? Well, thank God for that. Thank God for whatever you see. I mean, are you waiting for somebody to be perfect? We are all in progress in our Christ-likeness. Even if someone is still rough around the edges, thank God for whatever little spiritual progress they're making. Thank God for that. And what if you have someone who just seems to not be growing at all? Well, at least you know how to pray for them. But thank God for anything you can, any evidence of his grace in their lives. You know, actually, this might be a lesson you need to apply in your marriages to your spouse. In marriage, sin comes out, which divides people. That can lead you to focus on all the negative things in your spouse, 
which is going to create a lot of division and maybe even lead you to take your spouse for granted. But just try and think of all the ways you are actually thankful for your spouse. Express those thanksgivings to God in prayer and to your spouse and just see if your relationship improves. Or do you think it will? And I'm telling you, if only more Christians did this, thanking God for one another, for their spouses and for others, unity would result. In fact, this leads to number three, the result of thanksgiving in prayer. The result of thanksgiving in prayer, and it is unity. Like I said before, nothing brings people together like thanksgiving. And this holds true spiritually as well. When you focus on your differences with others, what bothers you, division will result. But if you choose to focus on what you have in common, namely the same grace of God and Christ, unity results. And this should be true of, true of the whole body. In our passage, Paul stresses the unifying aspect of his thanksgiving prayer many times. Notice, he prays for them all, verse 4. He's confident of them all, verse 6 and 7. He speaks well of them all, verse 7, and he longs for them all, verse 8. You know, we're so prone to complain about others. Later in chapter 2, though, he'll tell us to do all things without grumbling or complaining. Instead, like I said before, if you were to just challenge yourself to, to focus on the grace of God evidenced in the lives of others and commit to thanking God for them and that grace, you would see unity result. And I'm not talking casually. I'm not talking every now and then. How about every single day you challenge yourself to thank God for, for others? You're going to see your relationship change. It's really hard to hold a grudge against someone when you are daily thanking God for them. You see how that defeats that divisive spirit? You'll instead see yourself seeing them in a new light as you view them through the lens of grace. Yeah, maybe they don't deserve your blessing, but we don't deserve God's blessing. See them through the lens of grace and thank God for them, and you'll see unity result. This to be true in your own lives and the life of the church as well. This is one of the big ways God intends to draw his people closer together through thanksgiving in prayer. Finally, let's finish with number four, the benefit of thanksgiving in prayer. The benefit of thanksgiving in prayer, and this is joy. Joy. I mean, we referenced this earlier, but would you ever associate the word joy with your prayer life? Or is it another word like, like chore? Or burden. And for many people, it's the latter. And it's no wonder they struggle to pray. Because who wants another chore in life? We have enough chores and duties. And if prayer is merely a duty, who wants that? But if you find prayer to be less than joyful, that means you're missing something. And chances are, like I said earlier, you're probably missing thanksgiving in your prayers. If you approach prayer merely as the means of getting something from God, then you'll pray only as often as you need something. And furthermore, it puts all the focus of your prayers on you. You're really only thinking about yourself, your needs, your wishes, your desires. Again, it's not wrong at all to let your request be made known. Yes, pray for what you need. But if that's all you pray for, it's a recipe for a very sour prayer life. 
Instead, as we said, spend time reflecting on all that you do have and then thank God for all that he's given you. More importantly, thank him for all the people in your life. And most importantly, thank him for Christ and your salvation. And as you do so, you will be, through prayer, setting your mind on things above. And that should bring you joy. If you're in Christ, that that will bring you joy. As you recall your status as a child of God, adopted by grace, it should lead you to rejoice. And you express that joy, how? By giving thanks in prayer. And that pleases the Father. Now just imagine, what if you had total short-term memory loss? And you're dead broke. But one day, you win the lottery. You deposit the check. And now you're a multimillionaire. But every morning, you wake up and you totally forget that you won the lotto. So every morning, you wake up and you think you're still dead broke. And every morning, you wake up depressed because you're broke. But you set a daily morning reminder to check your bank account every morning. And as you do, you're reminded, well, in reality, you're, you're filthy rich. And how would you feel if you woke up every morning and you, you learned in your bank account there's $20 million? Feel pretty good. But you see, spiritually, if you're in Christ by faith, you are filthy rich, spiritually speaking. And recalling this, remembering this should bring you joy. You remember, oh, I, I guess things aren't so bad. I am rich in Christ. So like I said, if you lack that joy, it's probably because you lack thanksgiving for all that you do have, which in Christ, remember, it's everything. And that's the right response to our great salvation, all that our God has already done for us. Yes, let your request be made known to God. Still pray for what you need, but never without thanksgiving. And more often than not, this is how God ministers his peace and his joy to our souls. For in Christ, we already have all things. We inherit a kingdom an eternal kingdom. So what do you have to worry about? I mean, nothing, not even death, can separate you from the love of God in Christ. So remember that. And then celebrate, rejoice, give thanks. Let us learn this lesson this morning, giving Thanksgiving a regular seat at the table of our prayer lives. Give thanks to God. Give thanks for one another. Do so regularly, frequently, focusing on the grace of God at work in their lives. And then just watch as unity and joy fill your lives and fill the church. In fact, why don't we do that now? Before I close in prayer, I want you to respond. Have a moment to respond. So I'll give you a few minutes here. Just pause yourself. Bow in prayer by yourself. Recollect, recall all that you already have in Christ, the others in your life, and just thank God for them for him, for Christ. Let's thank him together. Let's do that now, and I'll close in a minute.
Our Heavenly Father, we bow before you this morning and we give thanks. We reflect on all that we don't deserve from you. In fact, all that we deserve is judgment for our sins, our own rebellion against you. Yet if we receive anything less than judgment, we have reason to give thanks. And indeed, Lord, through Christ, we have received far more. Through Christ, not only have we escaped your righteous and holy judgment, you've also heaped upon us, Lord, this blessing after blessing. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ is already ours. It's already in our account. And what do we do to deserve this, Lord? Nothing. It simply comes by your, your grace and your love through the Lord Jesus Christ. So we thank you, Lord, first and foremost, for giving your Son, the Lord Jesus, to die on the cross, to rise from the dead, to purchase new life for us and give it to us. Now we inherit a kingdom. We inherit life eternal. We've even received your spirit now, Lord. We have so much to be thankful for, and, and so we thank you. Same goes even for our material lives. We have food. We have clothing. We have shelter. We live in America. We know prosperity the world doesn't know. Sure, some of us here may be poor by American standards, but by world standards, we're all rich, and we're, we're doing just fine, Lord. You have blessed us in, in so many ways, and so we thank you again. We thank you also, Lord, for one another. I, I thank you dearly for this church and all those who gather here, each one of them, the work you're doing in their lives. We praise you and thank you for that, Lord. And I pray all of us here learn well this lesson to be praying and thanking you for one another. This is how we, we look past our differences and see the work of grace in your lives. And that's how we stand as one, just by grace. If, in, if it's not for your grace, Lord, we will divide from you and from one another. Keep us in your graces, and may we be thanking you for your grace at work in this body. Fill us with joy as we do so. Rejoice in the Lord who's done so much for us. We thank you, God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.